invite you now to hear God's word as we look in the third chapter of Ephesians, beginning with chapter 14. <clears throat> For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of God. Please be seated. You know, there are a couple of things that no one ever has to teach me, uh, even from being in a child state. I remember distinctly things I remember growing up. My brother and I loved each other dearly, but uh, he reminded me of the time where he was coming out into the barn one afternoon or one morning. I guess it was probably a Saturday since we were not in school. And there was an old ice cream churn that was in the attic. And in that ice, that ice cream churn, was, it wasn't in the attic, it was in the second floor of the barn, and it was just sitting up there, it was just empty. And as my brother was coming to the barn and he was going to go through the bottom door into the barn, I was above him in a, in a door that was wide open. I, I don't know why he didn't see me, but I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if I dropped that churn on his head if he'd notice it. And so I, I leaned over and then I thought, well, no, I'm probably too high. So I got on my stomach and leaned outside the door. And as he walked under it, I was the perfect mama deer, you know, <whistles> bam, right on top of his head. And he fell down and I said, are you okay? And of course, he had some strong words to express to me when he found out I did that. Well, there were other things I remembered this past week I won't go into because if you knew what I did as a child, you probably wouldn't want me to be your pastor. Of course, if I knew what you did in your life, I wouldn't want to be your pastor either. The most amazing thing about our lives is we know we are not what we were meant to be, and there are certain things that no one has to teach me. No one has to teach me how to hate. No one has to teach me how to be angry and use that anger to hurt others. You know, no one has to teach me how not to share things. Uh, one of the things that Cindy brought to the beach this past week as we were having a family reunion was a pound cake. We don't get pound cakes often. And so as we were breaking that out, I was reminding everybody how awful this pound cake was. And they really didn't want to eat it because we wanted to make sure that no one would got sick during the week. And, of course, the ulterior motive was to take it home. So we were trying to tell people we didn't really want to share it with them. No one has to teach me how to do evil. Did you notice that? Have you noticed it in your life? No one has to teach me how to hate God or ignore God. They're both the same. You see, whether I hate him or ignore him, I'm still at enmity with him. 
And so this morning as we read this uh, second prayer that Paul is writing, it's a powerful prayer that really speaks about something concerning not just God's love, but your love for God. Your love for God. And as we read it and we think about it this morning, my prayer is that you will be so cut to the heart as far as you're crying out for God because this is one place where the church needs to be taught how to live. It is the reason that Christ went to the cross and died for us. He didn't do that to make you feel good or to include you in some group. We found out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, we have found out so far that God had a plan, an eternal plan, that he was going to unite both Jew and Gentile into a new creation called the church that would be identifiable to the world as distinct, as different from the way the world operates. And they would be doing a, a life that was different from the world because of their love for Jesus Christ. In other words, because they had found a message of hope in him who God has sent into the world, they would be transformed in their heart to live out what would the world would call abnormal living. They would pray for their enemies. They would bless those who persecute them. They would seek peace in the midst of war. They would seek to reconcile those who were divided. They would be distinctly different from the world. The most amazing thing about the passage is when you begin to analyze it, you look in verse 14 and you find some very powerful things that Paul begins to talk about. First, he talks about the convictions of why he has, he has prayed and the undergirding of what that prayer is about. Please notice in verse 14, he says, for this reason. What reason? Well, you have to go back and read chapters 1 and 2. By the way, do you want to do that now? Will you give me time to do that? I wish you would. Because in all honesty, many of you are already feeling uncomfortable on these pews. I don't know why we have these pews. They're, they're beautiful historic pieces of object, but they are not helpful except to keep you awake <laughs> most amazing thing about this passage where Paul says for this reason though he says for the reason that Christ who you did not love you were alienated from you did not seek him you did not want to please him you were an alien and stranger to him God so loved you, he sent the Son into the world, that through him you would not only find forgiveness for your sins, but that you would find the power of repentance. What does that mean? You would have the power to resist what is evil. Now hear this, that you would have the power, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, at work in you, to help you resist what is evil. Now, if that's not power, I don't know what is. It's greater than any atomic bomb that can be produced. It is more powerful than the sun that brings light and life to the face of the earth. That power that was at work in the day of that resurrection is now at work in you to conform you to the will and image of Jesus Christ. 
And so as you and I begin this, you think, well, then why in the world do we need prayer? If Paul is going to pray, he's already given us the reason we are included in Christ. Why do we need to pray? We've got this power. Well, the problem is, though you have the power at work in you, you either don't fully understand it, or you don't know how to follow it, or you're being tempted by sin not to believe it. You see, the flesh, the devil, the world is still at work trying to conform you to its image, just as Christ now is in you trying to conform you into his image. Both are at work at the same time in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so in light of that, when you and I begin to look at this passage and he begins to say, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom the families of heaven and on earth are derived its names, he is not just spitting out words to entertain you. He's talking about a way in which there is prayer that is more, more urgent, more desiring than normal prayer. And by the way, when you think of that reconciling work of Christ, there is one place where you and I constantly need instruction, and that is how to pray. This is probably why God has included this in the scriptures for us. Because many of you have asked yourselves, how should I pray? Well, this is the way you should pray, Paul says. He writes to the Ephesians, I pray for you kneeling before the Father. And immediately you think, well, okay, prayer means I have to kneel. And the answer is no, it's not. In fact, the Jews in that day, interestingly enough, would stand and pray. If you remember pictures in TV of seeing those at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, they are standing and they're bobbing like this as they pray. This is a way they believe their affairs are affected. Paul here, unlike any Jew who would be standing, says, I kneel before the Father. And that kneeling really emphasizes that what Paul is in communicating to the Ephesians is that he wants them to understand that what he is praying for them is more important than any kind of prayer that could be offered in their name or in Christ's name on their behalf. That they would understand the spiritual richness, the inheritance that they have now gained by belief in Jesus Christ. And they would appropriately take that inheritance and use it for the glory of God. And he tells these Ephesians, I only not only kneel, I kneel to the Father. Who, by the way, is the Father of now both the Jew and the Gentile. Those who were so separated from one another and even hated one another. I pray to both the Jew God and the Gentile God who is now the one God of both of them through Jesus Christ by faith. I don't know if you've thought about that. Someone who's so different from you. I want you to know that as we experience what's happening in our day, I, I've talked to so many people. I've got a, a nephew who lives in Atlanta and a niece I've got some other family who live in different places and I'm telling them I cannot believe what is happening in our area because we're having people come to North Carolina from all kinds of ungodly places. <laughs> I have noticed that even the traffic patterns in our community have changed. Stop, S-T-O-P means Y-E-I-L-D. Is that the way you spell it? There you go. I'm glad you're listening. One of the things that's amazing to me 
is that we are seeing a resurgence of a migration in our country. And you know what that means? You're going to find some people you don't like. Why? You say, Robert, that's nothing different. I've been in this community for 50 years, and there's still people I don't like. Well, guess what? More are coming. And the most amazing thing is <clears throat> Paul writes to the Ephesians and reminds them that once they were just as alienated from God as you feel as alienated from people you don't know. But now through the cross of Christ, you are all father of the same God. I'm so proud of this church. I'm so proud of the way that you welcome people who are different than you. I'm so proud of the way that you see people not based on their political identity or where they grew up or whether they have hair or not. I'm so grateful for that because I want you to know that that is a mark of you knowing Christ. It is a mark of your understanding that you are not there yet, that you're growing in your relationship with Jesus, but you're on the right road. And that's what Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand. That's why he kneels and prays to the Father who, who through every family on heaven and earth, and he's not talking about the entire globe of people. He's talking about those people within their community who are not like each other. And yet they all understand that they are now part of one, one family called the church. And so in light of that, you find secondly that he not only deals with the convictions that undergirds his prayer, that these once divided people are now united in Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about the proper position of prayer. Remember how he said, I kneel before the Father? Well, it's interesting because when you look at that, he says, I kneel for a reason. That urgency is the urgency that what he's going to pray that prayer he is offering on their behalf so that they will understand that as he prays, the substance of what he's praying is so vitally important for their walk with Jesus Christ. That without these things in your life, your life with Christ will falter. And therefore, you and I, especially me, I should be praying this kind of prayer every day as I walk with Christ. It should be on my lips constantly. And there are four things that he asked God the Father for as he's kneeling for those Ephesians who are new in Christ. He says first that you will be strengthened with might. Please notice that verse. It's very important. He says, I pray in verse 16 that out of the glorious riches he may strengthen you with a power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, is there a possibility that Christ would not dwell in my heart? Yes. Though Christ is always present with us, our acknowledgement of his presence constantly eludes us, doesn't it? Whether you're at work or at home or in your neighborhood, there are moments when we have amnesia to the presence of Christ that we decide to take on problems or fix issues in our own way without consulting the Lord or looking to Him for the strength we need in order to do His will. In fact, many of you are frustrated in your Christian walk because you in all your candor are trying to do the best you can to be a good Christian. But the problem is it's like a lamp that's not plugged in. 
You have forgotten that you need to be plugged into Jesus Christ to abide in him and his word and allow his life to be living through you. Much like electricity flows through a cord that brings brilliance to the bulb. We were walking into a room we were staying in in a beautiful beach house with our family reunion. And one of the things that really was perturbing to me was that we tried to turn on the lights and nothing happened. You ever had that happen? We walked into a dark room. Kind of reminds me of the couple who was sitting at breakfast one morning and, and it's a GE commercial. Have you seen it? Oh, it's a great commercial. It probably sold more light bulbs than anything in the history of humanity. The couple, they must be in their 70s. They're sitting at the breakfast table and the man is sitting there eating his soup as his wife has prepared their supper. He's leaning over the bowl and he's taking the spoon and as he gives the spoon to his lips, you can hear his slurping. She finally puts down her spoon, throws her arms across her chest and says, the magic's gone. And there's one single light bulb leaning out of the ceiling on a wire coming down above their head. And she says, when the lights go out, you fall asleep. And the light bulb goes out. The screen's blank. And you hear, <laughs> without Christ in your life daily, your light's gone out. Paul is for saying, I'm praying that you will be strengthened. Now get this. The words here are very important. He says, I'm praying that God will give you power, but it will be strengthened. Strengthened how? Well, unlike the batteries we use in our cell phone or in our light flashlights, I don't know if you've noticed that, but... Um, those of you who have cell phones, the companies who've sold them to you are counting on the battery going dead. When you charge the battery the first time, that's about as good as that battery is ever going to get as far as a charge. Every time you plug it in, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, there's a diminishing return that happens until finally the battery just will not charge anymore. And the most amazing thing about that is the timing of that is always at the most inappropriate times. Isn't it? And so when you think of that analogy and you begin to think about what Paul is praying, that I pray that you will be given power by God and that you will be strengthened, he's not talking about a battery that runs down. In other words, you believe in Jesus and then you go on and live your life as best you can. He's talking about living with Jesus and being energized, being super energized in such a way that your battery never falters. In other words, the power for living continues to expand and to grow in you. That your love for Christ, that love you had, that precious love for him when you understood what he did for you in the gospel would not be the height of your Christian experience. It would only be the beginning of your Christian experience. It would only be the beginning of understanding the love of God. It would just be the beginning of understanding experientially how much God loves you and cares for you and what he's done for you in the cross. If you're honest with me and I will be honest with you, there is no, no way I could say, oh yes, that's me, buddy. 
because my life has been up and down, hills and valleys, hills and valleys, hills and valleys. Why is that? Because of this prayer Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would be strengthened with power. He is praying that they will come to understand that they cannot satisfy their lives or even satisfy God unless they live by faith in Jesus Christ. And for that it takes discipline. What kind of discipline? Not the discipline to pull up your bootstraps, the discipline to call upon Jesus for everything, even how we pray. That inner capacity that God wants to see expand in us, that inner capacity to love God greater and greater so that Christ may dwell in you. That powerful statement, it's really two words that are used for habitation in the New Testament. Uh, one deals with that kind of being dwelling or that kind of dwelling where it's someone who comes in and they are strangers. They just stay and leave. But Paul doesn't use that word here. He uses a different word. He uses a word in the Greek called ketoikein, which means someone who comes in and settles in and stays forever you get it and so because of that because of that knowledge that that needs to be a part of their whole cognizance of what life is that they are not alone that they are now in Christ Christ is in them Paul says I pray that you then will be rooted and grounded in love. Please notice the terms there. One deals with an agricultural term and the other deals with an architectural term. Isn't that powerful? We, we've just planted a garden this past month and we're just so excited because we actually had rain last night. And as the rain came down, the corn is looking so good. Uh, don't worry, we're going to have plenty to share. But the most amazing thing to me is how all the corn stalks have just fallen over. It's flat on the ground. And you think, oh man, my corn's going to die. And the most amazing thing is that that corn, because of its roots being so deep in the soil, will never have to be picked up by me. That corn, literally each plant, will stand itself up on its own. Why? Because it's so strong? No, because its roots are deep. And so when sin comes into your life, whether it's the devil telling you a lie or your flesh causing your desires to lead you in places you shouldn't go and you know it, or, or the, your pride where you find it so hard to call upon Christ, those moments where the sin comes so strongly against you, Paul is praying that they will be rooted in the love of God. So that in that love of God, they will be able to stand. The, uh, the, the architectural term is so powerful because it not only speaks about someone who is rooted as an agricultural term, but then goes on to say that you will not only be rooted, but that you will be grounded Mac Puckett's here. He's an electrician. He can tell you what happens when a wire isn't grounded. You light up like a Christmas tree. Well, interestingly enough, when Paul uses the word grounded, he's talking about not electricity, but a foundation. 
that will not move. Do you know this building is built on a foundation that is basically rock? If you go around and you look, you'll see on, on the, the mat or the, what do you call the bottom of the window? The sash along the sash of the outside, you'll see some cracks here or there where this soft brick of this building has cracked through so many years of standing. I think it's amazing it's standing at all. Most buildings like this would have collapsed easily years ago. But you know what really is keeping this building standing? There's a table rock that runs across right here, right under us. It goes all the way to the hospital. It's about <clears throat> 15 inches to 3 feet deep, and it's solid granite. And this building is built on that rock, and it is reason it does not have warped windows or fissures of cracks throughout its walls. When I first came to this building, believe it or not, this, this whole plaster was, was completely cracked. It, was, it looked like it would fall down. Gene Simmons, a painter, came and put caulking into it. I said, Gene, is that caulk going to work? He says, it expands and contracts. I hope, sure hope so. I don't want to come back and do this again. Do you see any cracks? Paul says, I pray that you as a Christian would be so rooted and grounded in the love of Christ that this love of God would grow in you day by day so that you would continue to become more and more like Jesus Christ because Christ is in you already. He goes on to say, not only do I pray that you be rooted and grounded in love, he says that I pray that you know the love of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's not just cerebral knowledge like 2 plus 2 is 5, I mean 4. Some of you are still awake. I'm glad to see that. It's that I will experientially know. That I will experience God's love. Not just that God would love me, but that through me, God would love those who are unlovable. Because that's the love of God. I used to use the illustration of people who had tattoos, and I've learned that that's probably not a good illustration anymore. But I want you to know I had someone come to me a while back who said, you know, I was so scared when you, you talked about tattoos because I thought you were trying to alienate me. And I said, oh, God, forgive me, no. The truth is, if, if we all were honest, we would have places in our lives that would be stained by sin. And if people could see those, then we would say there's no hope for any of us. But that's the glory of the cross is that Christ who looked at you and your sin instead of shaming you or pointing out your sin, he so loved you, he went to the cross for you that he might pay its penalty and deliver you from its curse. That's the love of God. That's why we work hard to support ministries that relieve people from the stain of sin 
That's why we give so much time and effort to loving people who are different from us. That's why we're laboring as Christians to grow deeper in our love for Christ so that we don't see people as if they're from California or New York we, or Florida, those half-back people. You know what I'm talking about? People who move from the north to the south and come halfway back. Not that we see them as those kinds of people, but we see them as people who God loves. Paul says, I pray that you know that kind of love of Christ. And then fourthly and finally, he says, I pray that you would be filled to the fullness of God. Oh, by the way, going back to the knowing and the love of God, he says in this, he says, I pray that you would know the, the, the measurements of God's love. Did you read that? It, it's really quite powerful. He says in verse 18, may, may you have power together with all the saints. In other words, you just don't see this as you and Jesus standing against the world, but that you might understand that all the saints who believe in Christ with you are called to understand this kind of love. What kind of love? Verse 18, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Well, what is he talking about? Well, one commentator put it this way. He says, it is so broad, it's broad enough to encompass every person who would turn and believe in Christ. It is long enough for, to last for eternity. It is deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. It is high enough to exalt him to heaven. This is the love of Christ. And then finally, to be filled, to be filled. Do I have that right? Yes, to be filled in the fullness of God. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, please notice as we read this passage in verse 19, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, it is not understood by people outside of Christ who are tied to the things of the world. It is a love that is only experientially known by those who come to know Jesus. And by knowing Jesus, the world looks and goes, Tony Campolo in one of his books talks about one night as he was, I think as a student, he was going to a diner in a shady part of town where, where in the late hours really only those who were prostitutes would come and have something to eat before they went home. They were a regular group that came into the diner every night. And in that, in that diner, as, as he would come in, the rest would come in after doing their tricks over the evening, and he would listen to their conversations and hear how much love they had for one another and also the pain that they shared with one another. And he wanted to tell them of God who loved them, but he knew that he had no, no bench to stand on because they would look at him immediately as someone who could not understand the, life, the kind of life that they had had to live. Until one night, one of the girls, let's call her Dixie, that's not her name, missed that evening when she couldn't come in. And someone said that she had, she had decided that she was going to go home because, because tomorrow was going to be her birthday and she had no one to celebrate it with. And Tony, in a rare moment of bravery, the first words he really ever spoke to the group, said, I've got an idea. Why don't we throw a party for Dixie? And all the rest of the group got excited. They said, yeah, why did we think of that? 
well, I can get a cake. I can get some plates. I'll get some party hats. Let's go. Let's do it. So everybody got a plan, and they put it together so that the next night when Dixie showed up, she came, and they surprised her with a birthday party. Surprise! Happy birthday! And they all sang, even Tony. And as they were celebrating, Dixie began to cry. Because she had had no one who would love her in this way in so long, she was surprised that even people who she knew so well would care that much for her. After it was all over, the, the cook, the, the guy who was behind the counter making the food all night, came over and said, okay, buddy, what's your angle? He said, well, what do you mean? What are you trying to get out of her? Leave her alone. She's had a hard enough life with having someone she doesn't know come in again and take advantage of her. What do you want from her? And his response is, I want nothing from her except her to know that she's loved. Well, where in the world did you learn how to love people? And he says, well, I go to a church where we are learning about the love of God, and it just seemed the right thing to do. The short order cook looked at him and said, you go to church? He said, yeah. Well, what church do you go to? Because if that's the kind of God you come to know, I want to know him. That's the love of God. The fullness, the fullness of God. That God is not in the business of saving those who think they don't need God. God is in the business of reaching those who know they desperately need someone to help them. But does not believe anyone would ever love them. Enough to tell them who God is. You see, when Paul talks about the fullness of God, he's talking about the calling we enjoy going into sin. We really hate sin as... As Logan pointed out this morning, we really hate it, don't we? Even when we fall into it, we just feel such regret over it. God, why did I do that? That's the Holy Spirit at work in us. But then Paul closes the message with these beautiful words. It's almost as if he's going to end the letter here. It's almost as if he's going to stop right now. But let me tell you, he has set up these first three chapters so that you understand that if you're going to love Jesus, it's going to change the way you work, the way you live with your spouse, the way you raise your children. It's going to change you because the love of God cannot be experienced unless it brings some transformation. And it's going to be different from the world. Do you hear me? It is not going to be what we're seeing in this politically correct society. It's going to stick out in that society as a sore thumb. And people are going to make fun of it. They're going to laugh at it. And it's because they don't understand the love of God. And we don't have to be defensive. We can love them just where they are. But Paul closes this teaching on the power of the cross in saying in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power 
that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. You want to say and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Yeah. Well, get this. When you pray, have you ever wondered, does God answer my prayer? He'll answer this one. There are many times I pray, God, help me to love you more than I did today, tomorrow. Help me to love you tomorrow more than I did today. Or even this, God, help me to love you more today than I did yesterday. God, help me. Why do I need God to help me there? Because I don't have that love. Only Christ does. And he makes it available to anyone who would ask. How do I know that? Well, please notice he says that God is able to do or to work. That Greek word is very powerful. What it really implies is that God is neither idle nor inactive nor dead. God is at work in you. That he is able to do what we ask. That God, when he hears you pray in this way, he answers this prayer. He doesn't sit back and go, well, maybe. I'll, I'll think about it. That he is able to do what we ask or think. In other words, God reads our thoughts even as we pray this prayer. And we measure ourselves knowing we don't live up to the love of Christ. And we sometimes imagine things which we dare not or even want to think about. And therefore don't ask for even those things God is able to hear. That he's not only able to do those things, he's able to do all that we ask or think. He knows it all and he's going to perform it for his glory. That he is able to do more than, the word is there, hyper, beyond all that we ask or think. That God's expectations are higher than ours. Which I think is pretty amazing because sometimes I think I can never live up to God's expectations. And when I hear they're higher, it's because he has the love of his Christ at work in me. To do what I could not do by myself. That he is able to do much more, more abundantly, the Greek word there, abundantly than we ask or think. That God does not give his grace by calculated measure. He is up there in heaven as you are getting ready to pray this prayer. And imagine just like the coach at the end of an NFL football game, the players take the Gatorade bucket and pour it on the coach. You ever seen that? Well, God is in heaven right now, and he's ready to pour this answered prayer upon you like a deluge from the Holy Spirit. He's able to do that. He's ready to do that. In fact, he can't wait for you to pray it. And then finally, God is able to do much more. What? He is able to do much more, far more abundantly than we ask or think. If they see if it's a word, God is a God of super abundance. So when you feel weak, incapable, filled with sin, drawing you away, and you cry out to God, He has so much more than you can possibly imagine to give you. Amen. Let us pray.
Our Father, our culture is crying out for a God who can love them in the midst of their sins. And Lord, there is a lot of sin. But it's not just outside the church, it's in our hearts. We would like to be able to point fingers. The truth is we know that in our own lives there are things that are hindering us from the love of Christ. And so our prayer is that we would know the love of Christ so that Christ not only may dwell in our hearts, but that he would dwell. And people would be able to discern his presence in us, through us, because we were so bold to pray, God, help me to love you the way Christ has loved me. We pray it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.